Well, during January, I am preaching on the power of stewardship. We move in February to the power of love and in March to the power of an endless life and so on through the year. The power of stewardship, this is the third message, and its title is Money and Motives, or Where Did Jim Baker Go Wrong? I would say a very key message in this understanding of the biblical uh, meaning of stewardship. This is a passage that we have read on motives. I hope that you have sensed that in the reading, and particularly in verse 7, where Paul uses this term as he purposes in his heart. That's the bottom line in giving. As he purposes in his heart, it's a motivational thing. A man's motives must be right. This passage also informs us, as we will see, that giving is more than a single act. It involves the whole spirit of life. It involves the whole person. Jesus tried to point that out on numerous occasions, such as in Matthew chapter 10, verse 42, when he said, And whoever gives one of these little ones only a cup of cold water in the name of a disciple, assuredly, I say to you, he shall by no means lose his reward. In the name of a disciple, a disciple being a follower of Jesus Christ, whoever does that in the name of a disciple has the right motive. And Jesus says he shall by no means lose his his reward. Then in Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37, a certain lawyer came to him asking him who his neighbor was. And Jesus told him a story. The story of a man that was wounded and robbed along the road to Jericho. And in the story, Jesus said that the priest and the Levite passed by, but on the other side of the road. They did not want anything to do with this beaten, wounded, and dying man. But then Jesus said a Samaritan came by. Now, the last of the three that would have stopped, you would think, would have been the Samaritan. A castaway not a Jew, not an alien, or not a, uh, a member of the commonwealth, but an alien of the blessings of Israel. And yet, Jesus said, it was this Samaritan that stopped. It was this Samaritan that bound up his wound. It was this Samaritan that put him on his own beast and took him to an inn, and told the innkeeper that whatever it cost, he would be willing to pay the bill. And Jesus called him, of course, a good Samaritan. After telling the story, Jesus asked the certain lawyer, which of you, which of these three do you think was neighbor to him who fell among thieves? 
And the lawyer said, he who showed mercy on him. And in the answer of the lawyer is the word motivation. He showed mercy to him, motivated by a mercy within him. The Samaritan stopped and did what he didn't really have to do. He ministered to the man out of the motivation of his heart. He was his neighbor. And from page to page in the New Testament, you see the teaching of Jesus centering on how we use what is entrusted to us. Not on how much is entrusted to us, but how we use what is entrusted to us. The entire tele-evangelist debacle does not deal with how much came in, but where it went after that, and why. Why expensive jet trips to Palm Springs for shopping sprees? And I could give you some of the figures of that, which I am privy to, but I will not discourage you with the figures. They are astounding, disgusting, and frightening. Money given by many times ladies on pensions and welfare and older people who were motivated by television to send in their offerings. And there's nothing wrong in sending in the offerings. And if the motivation in sending the offerings was God-glorifying, God will bless that. The responsibility after the offering is given on who receives the offering. That's where the responsibility lies. And the motivation of getting that offering. We have come under scrutiny throughout the world as evangelical believers because of this debacle of bad motive. Enormous salaries and perks that were unquestionably taking away from ministry, causing many times untruthfulness on television, saying, if we don't get your offering today, we will not be here tomorrow, which was a lie most of the time. Motivation. Why? Whatever the nature of our work, a big chunk of self goes into it whether it be an evangelist, a pastor, a digger of ditches, a person who pulls a lever at an assembly line all day, or a leader of a corporation when we get money, that money then becomes a part of I. And when I go to the grocery store, it is I going to that store. 
with that which I have earned. When some of that money sends the children to college, that is I too. When some of it pays taxes, it is I participating in government. You can't get away from that. Self is involved in that. When some of it is squandered, it is I, and something of me is lost when my motive is self. When Adam dictates how that is to be controlled and used, rather than God dictating through our spirit and through our Christian discipleship how that is to be used. And therein lies the great teaching of the New Testament. Two things in my message. First, the drive to possess. Where does this drive to possess come from? People have said to me, well, pastor, it's instinctive. And I'm afraid they've been a little shocked when I've said, no, it is not instinctive. Biblically, I do not believe it is instinctive, or God would not have had to command Adam to get out and subdue the world, bring it into subjection. God had to speak to him and say, go out and bring this world of yours into your subjection. Possess it. Man did not do that until God told him to do it. It is not instinctive. The study of human nature will show us that when we are children, we are in our own little world, our own universe, and in that sphere experience a sense of grandeur and even omnipotence. I, I can illustrate that by my grandchildren who come to my house. And the doorbell rings, and we have this little game. We have these shutters by the front door and the window, a little thin window there. And, and I hear this doorbell, and I, I can hear all this chit-chat out there. I know who's out there without looking out. And when I peek through the little shutters, I see these eyes looking through, and I say, who is at my house? And this laughing is going on, and they're jumping up and down. And I open the door, and boy, they bound through that door. Don't pay one bit of attention to me. It is as though they say, I am here. I am now in charge. Boy, if you don't believe that, come to my house when they arrive. You will see they just... And especially the two-year-old. She is unbelievable. She just kind of has her head up in the air and she marches right on through. She won't say hi, Grandpa, or anything. She just marches in and checks the whole place over. Sets up her little kingdom. She has all these vice presidents. Amazing. I didn't teach them that. Two years old, there's that grandeur and omnipotence. And things are not important to those little kids. That's why we have to put things up. They don't know the difference between a piece of crystal and a five and dime cent glass. That's 
why you have to be careful. If you cherish anything at all, value anything at all, and they have to be taught. As that child grows, he loses his power. The fantasy of omnipotence passes, and he turns to inanimate things, including money, as compensation for the loss of his power. It's interesting. Love, sharing, relating to one another, belonging to a family, these are the real things that hold us together when our motives are turned toward ourselves, as happens with the child. The instinctive drive is toward things. Not until someone is without money does that person realize the sudden anxiety caused by the loss of it. You see, that's picked up as we go along. It's learned. And unless we unlearn it, we're in deep trouble. Now, how do you drive out this desire to possess? How do you handle it? There's only one way, and that's through teaching self-control. That's why we have so much neurosis around us today, because neurotic behavior develops when self-control is not insisted upon. And we have neurotic behavior all over because a generation listened to Spock. They read Spock instead of Solomon. They paid attention to Spock instead of God, and Spock said, Don't touch that child. You will do eternal damage. When God says there is a place in the anatomy I have designed to bring about self-control, use it. So we have this neurosis all over today. Now this two-year-old gets up to five years old, and now they have a different sense of need. I have noticed that if I give to the five-year-old some money, they don't really understand the value of it, because I'll find it on the carpet, on the couch, in the car. It isn't until they get a little past that going up to age nine, that they discover that money will purchase an ice cream cone or a ride on the horse outside the supermarket. Suddenly, that money begins to tell them that it has some power connected with it that will bring them things they like. And if they're not taught how to control it, it is at that point that control must be taught. And let me just give you one of my pet peeves. It's to see kids standing in these game rooms, plugging quarters into these stupid Pac-Man machines. That is the worst thing in the world to do in trying to teach them self-control. And I see them sometimes with stacks of quarters that have been given them by adults teaching them nothing. 
about value and self-control. It's dangerous. Now, if this child is not taught self-control, and he discovers that that money can buy an ice cream cone or whatever his fancy comes up with, he will start raiding the family piggy bank to get it if he hasn't been taught. And if at that point he isn't taught, then he will start with the First National Bank. That's right. And there is that neurosis that is a part of society, so much so that it's frightening. So Jesus speaks to the issue, and he's saying, here through the Apostle Paul, if you hoard it, you will reap sparingly. If you share it, you will reap abundantly. That it isn't for self. It is to use for mankind. And if that motivation is learned, our life becomes a blessing, a channel of goodness to the world. If it is not learned, we become part of the neurosis. Carl Menninger once said that generous people are rarely mentally ill people. That really caught my attention, and I believe it is true from my own observation. Now, the amount is not in question. It is the motivation that is in question. The person with millions may live in just as desperate fear that he won't have enough as the person who fears to be thrown out of their apartment because they don't have the rent this week. It's possible on either end of the spectrum. So he's not talking about how much. He's talking about motivation. And in this passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 8, Paul says, God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that you, always having all sufficiency in all things, have an abundance for every good work. What have we learned here? We have learned that God is able to make grace abound. It's spiritual, and then it moves to the material. Grace is spiritual. All sufficiency in all things is material, having abundance for every good work. Be it Calcutta, India to feed the poor. Be it television. Be it radio ministry be it the building program, be it missions of any kind, we will have an abundance for every good work. That's powerful because it's spiritual. By the grace of God, we learn how to possess rightly that which God puts in our hands as stewards. Now, are we learning as Americans? I'm afraid not. I saw a sign. This is real, but unreal. It was in a loan company window. Quote, now you can borrow enough money to get completely out of debt. Isn't that marvelous? C. 
So do we need to learn. Oh, do we need to learn. This thing of possessing has got to be brought under the control of God's Holy Spirit by a spiritual work within us. That's what Paul is saying. Now, the second part of my message deals with the motivation to give. After the drive to possess, we must consider the motivation to give. First of all, there is a beauty in generosity. Otherwise, Jesus would not have said it is more blessed to give than it is to receive. Few people are more attractive and contagious than those individuals who find happiness in generosity. I want you to associate two words today that probably you have not associated too often in your life. The word enjoyment and the word giving. So often when we're talking about giving, people don't think of enjoyment, but God does. That's why we need to talk about the motivation of giving. Enjoyment and giving go together. That is God's plan. If we are preoccupied with getting, we fail to experience the truth of Christ's words. It is more blessed to give. I want you to open to the chapter just prior to the one we read from and notice the first 14 verses with me quickly. And let me highlight several things that are key to this Corinthian church. In verse 2, it says the abundance of their joy. It says the riches of their liberality. Enjoyment in giving together. The churches at Macedonia lived this way. And Paul uses them as an example to the Corinthian believers. Notice verse 5. They first gave themselves to the Lord. We'll touch on that later. Verse 7. See that you abound in this grace also. What grace? It goes back to verse 2. The grace of liberality. Verse 9. Jesus becomes the example, though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. Right next to verse 12, the word key, K-E-Y, put an asterisk there. The key to it all, a willing mind, verse 12. A willing mind. And then verse 14, that their abundance also may supply your lack. Marvelous passage of Scripture, which says giving is a matter of heart, not of circumstances. Keep your Bible open there and look back at the beginning of chapter 8, the Macedonians. It was not a good time for them to give, obviously by the text. It says there was a great trial of affliction. It says deep poverty in verse 2. It was not a perfect time for them to give. It never is a perfect time to give. That's why you have to decide, is this part of my stewardship? Is this part of my life? Or is it because the preacher gets up to take an offering? 
has nothing to do with the preacher taking an offering. Has nothing to do with the ushers passing the plate. It is the right thing to do, and God always ties it in with other spiritual graces, as he does in this passage. Notice the grace of God in verse 1. It creates an open and generous heart. And then it goes down to verse number 7. What I pointed out before, I underlined, see that you abound in this grace. What grace? Liberality, following the grace of faith, of speech, of knowledge, and diligence, and in your love, abound in this as well. You don't separate the offering from the rest. You don't separate your giving from the rest. Faith and knowledge and diligence and love are put side by side with the grace of giving. It's spiritual. And you never wait until you can afford it or you'll never start. Now, I had a dear brother come to me this week. If he's here, he knows that I love him. And he said to me, now, Pastor, what you're saying is that if you have $1,000 and your child gets sick and you have to take that child to the hospital and it's a matter of paying those bills or giving the Lord the tithe, you would give the tithe, you would take that 100 against this obligation to your family? I said, wait, one premise you have missed right off the top. And it's this, I don't have $1,000, I only have $900. The tithe is the Lord's. I don't have any control over that. That's God's. The first fruits, that comes right off the top. And I said, in response to your question, yes, I've practiced that all of my life. Always, without exception. That's not mine. God will make the other sufficient somehow if I trust him and am a steward, properly motivated before God. I learned two weeks ago from a computer printout that Capital Christian Center in 1987 out of all 11,000 churches of the Assemblies of God of America had the most income of any church in the United States in the Assemblies of God. We were number one, and I don't want you to clap. I did not know that until I saw that printout, and it shocked me. Because we don't do near what we should. I know there are people that come here week by week who rob God. Who ought to be giving money to God they hold for their bills and for their entertainment. So instead of making me glad, it almost made me weep. Because out of all of those churches, I couldn't help but think if everybody did what they should, 
think of the impact we could make on the world for Christ in this new year. Giving is a matter of heart, not of circumstance. As you abound in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all diligence, and in your love for us, see that you abound in this grace also, the grace of liberality. You think pastors like to get up and take offerings? You've got another thing coming. Have you ever thought of the uniqueness of my job? You are not paid to come here. I have no guarantee that you will come here week by week. I have no guarantee that you will obey what I preach to you. I could come here on some Sunday and preach to my wife. Have you ever thought of the excitement of getting up in the morning not really knowing because you don't have to come like you do on Monday to the job? What a unique position the preacher is in to be running a volunteer agency by faith. And that's what we do. And you think it's a big joy to get up and say now we must give because this need is here and we've got this bill to pay. Thank God I don't do that because I just tell you God wants you to give and if you will give, he will be faithful to you and together we can move the world so you don't get begging from this pulpit and never will. But I have the impression that some people think that's my greatest delight is to take offerings. Not so. My greatest delight is doing what I'm doing right now, telling you what the Bible says and asking you in the name of God to obey for your good. This church will survive. It is impregnable. It will outlast the gates of hell, Jesus said. So I don't have to preach this, nor do I have to take offerings. The church will survive. But I do it for your good, because you can't grow without it. You can't become a servant of Jesus Christ and ignore it. That's why I do it. Because the tide of your spiritual life is tied to your generosity. And I'll show you why in the next step in this passage in 2 Corinthians 8. Notice Paul said their model was Jesus. Verse 9, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. And they set Jesus as a model for their giving and for their living. The Macedonian Christians had taken Christ's model and in total disregard for their present needs of future requirements gave beyond their ability. Verse 3 says, which speaks of sacrifice. They gave beyond their ability. This statement, give till it hurts, isn't even a true statement. You can never give till it hurts. You give till it feels good. 
See, that's the biblical fact. They gave beyond their ability, and it was with joy and a willing mind that they did it. Oh, God, my prayer is that we might model after Jesus as well. Not that the church can't survive, but we can't survive as individuals without it. He must be our model in everything. For our sakes, he became poor. And then, I love verse 3 in chapter 8. It says, they were freely willing. There was no pressure. There was no reluctance, but joyful response. So there was never any pressure in the Macedonian churches to give. They were willing. Our mood and motive is so important in this grace of giving. And churches have some terrible reputations. Preachers have some terrible reputations about money. But the true servant of God talks about it when necessary so that the people may grow. And not out of reluctance, not out of pressure, but out of joy and a willing heart, we should respond. I love the story of the carnival. Every carnival has a big strong man who shows how strong he is and great things he can do. And in one carnival, this strong man would cut a lemon in half, and in his left hand he would squeeze that lemon until every bit of juice was out of it. And then the person who ran the carnival would invite the audience to come, and they would give $25 for every drop that anybody could get out of the lemon, the half of lemon that this strong man had squeezed. And nobody had ever collected until one day this slight little guy came up and asked if he could give it a try. And with his thumb and two of his fingers on one hand, he squeezed three drops out of that half lemon. First time that the carnival showman had to pay, and it was 75 bucks, three drops. And he said, tell me how you did that. He said, oh, I've been the treasure in our church for 25 years, and compared to trying to squeeze money out of its reluctant members for the budget, that lemon was easy. And that, unfortunately, is the image. But not in the Macedonian Christians. Not in the biblical concept. They were willing. And with great joy, they ministered unto the Lord in their giving. Joy and Christian growth come to those who assume the responsibility for the Lord's work gladly. Right motive. Oh, it's so key, so important. Now there's one final point, then we'll be done. Verse 5, they first gave themselves to the Lord. I said we'd come back to that. There's the clue right there. They first gave themselves to the Lord. And I'd just save you a little time by telling you a story that will underscore it, and then I'll quit. A missionary told the story of trying to convert a chief, an Indian chief, to Jesus Christ holding the story of Christ, and this chief wanting to impress the missionary made him gifts of horses and blankets and jewelry 
And the missionary said to the chief, my God does not want the chief's horses or blankets or jewelry. My God wants the chief himself. Then the chief smiled and said, you have very wise God, for when I give him myself, he also gets horses and blankets and jewelry. <laughs> yeah. Very wise chief. That's it. In a nutshell, they first gave themselves to God. So what are you saying, pastor? That if I'm reluctant to give, I haven't given myself to... That's right. There's something yet to be done spiritually. A true disciple of Christ is like the Macedonians. They find joy. They're motivated by love, not by law. They don't sit around arguing whether the tithe is New Testament or if it departed at Malachi. Motivated by love, they say. If it was law, then it certainly ought to be the minimum in the dispensation of grace when he gave everything for me. Money and motive. Gauge of spiritual life. One of the tragic things of leadership in the church is to see people that God blesses who were once at our altars, once leaders in various facets of the work of God who get blessed with things. And today you see them occasionally, never at the altar, never involved, too busy, possessing rather than sharing. The heart of God Sharing. The heart of his subject, sharing. Let's pray. Our Father, we take this section of your word today knowing it was inspired by the Holy Spirit through Paul. Now we have to do something with it. God, you know my motive today not to get more money in this church but it is to see people come into their inheritance in Christ to grow up in God and hold things loosely in this world while we win a world who is so in need of Christ touch hearts touch people oh God Bring us back to the simplicity of the gospel. May we understand what it is that the Spirit is saying to the church today. That we have a world to reach. And it is as we are faithful in the stewardship of life and the motivation of giving that we will reach it only then. While our heads are bowed, this last point about giving themselves first to God leads me to ask how many of you need to do that today. You need to ask Jesus into your heart. You need to ask him to forgive you of your sin, to possess your life. There's no better day than today, now. And I would ask you to raise your hand and say, Pastor Cole, that's where I'm at. I need to receive him, and I want to today, and I would ask that you pray for me. 
As you raise your hand, I will see it. Hold it there until I do, however. Yes, over to my left, sir, thank you. Back over here, another. God bless you toward the back, two hands and one section, another over in this one. Others, hold them up till I see them, then you may put them down up in the balcony on the right. God bless you over there, thank you. Two hands on the far right, another over here on the lower floor, and another in this section. God bless you, and another, ma'am, thank you, and another. Uh, boy, God bless you, son. How many more? Lift it up with these others up on the left-hand side of the balcony. Thank you up there. God bless you. Back over here, another on the left, or on the right, my right. Thank you, toward the back. Anyone else, quickly? Give him your life. Never find such joy. Thank you, back there as when you give your life to Christ. He gave his for you. Now, how many of you have not yet, after receiving Christ in this audience, you have not yet been baptized in water as a confession of your faith publicly by immersion? Would you raise your hand? You've not yet been baptized in water. Well, every Sunday night we baptize unless we announce otherwise. Tonight we will have baptismal at the beginning of the service. When I make the invitation, would you come to the flag over to your left and pick up the material? I urge you to follow the Lord in baptism. My third appeal would be to those of you who would like God to work on your motivation, that it will become godly and right, recognizing that this world's pressures take their toll. I would like you to raise your hand because I'd like to pray for you too this morning. Yes, yeah, so many all over the auditorium. God bless you. God bless you. And I'm going to believe for victory in your life. Let us all stand for prayer, please. Everyone on their feet in reverence to God. Let us ask God to minister in these areas that we have pointed out. Lord, for these who raise their hands indicating they need to receive Jesus in their life, May right now that name be written down in heaven because each person says, Jesus, come into my life, save me, forgive me of my sin. May the blood cleanse me. I receive Christ as my salvation. Those who need water baptism, may they move forward and become a part of the family of God by witness publicly by identifying with Jesus Christ in the waters of baptism. And may those, Lord, thirdly, who need a motivational change or at least some help in that area, that you would begin right now to give them the motivation of God. Oh, God, save us from our stinginess and our possessions. May we begin to learn today the great secret of being a channel, a conduit to the world of your blessing. Thank you, God, for that privilege. Amen. Paul Farron leads us in a song. I want to invite those who need baptism over here, those who raised your hand to receive Christ. I'd like you to come down and take the hand of one of our staff. If we dismiss, the aisles get full and you just can't make it down to the front. We want to give you a tape and a booklet. We want to give you some help. Every one of you, wherever you were when you raised your hand, just come on down and make it a public thing. Seal it by your coming forward today before you leave I would encourage you as we sing you come from wherever you are
I ask you to do it in Jesus' name.